Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Kevin Timpey. I don't think that the fact that Dennett and Dawkins give a bunch of bad arguments for atheism proves that atheism is bad. I just happen to think that nobody ought to be an atheist on the basis of what's in the God delusion. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Kevin Timpey is an associate professor of philosophy at Northwest Nazarene University in Nampa, Idaho. He has published several articles, written one book, and edited two others, focusing on issues in metaphysics and philosophy of religion. He is also the Philosophy of Religion Area Editor for the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a tremendous philosophy resource available for free on the web. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today. Before we get to your philosophy, would you tell us a bit about yourself? What has your own faith journey been? I had an upbringing much like I think many Americans. My parents were Christian, and in many ways I just grew, grew up inside the church. When I got to college, just started thinking about presuppositions that I had grown up with and just started really sort of... Uh, questioning things in, in ways that I hadn't before. This was about the same time that I discovered philosophy and started reading some church history and theology and realizing that much of what I'd been told either didn't make sense to me or I believed simply because I'd been told it. Mm -hmm. So currently I am a theist. I, I think that Christianity is in some form or other true. I currently teach at an evangelical Nazarene school, though my own personal leanings are more Episcopalian or even uh, Catholic. Mm. Okay. So, Kevin, you've written quite a bit about free will. I wonder if you might just uh, paint the context for us. What are philosophers debating with regard to free will, and what major positions have they taken? In the past 30 years or so, the primary issue has been between compatibilists and incompatibilists. Compatibilists are those who think that we could have free will even if determinism of some sort, either causal determinism or theological determinism, were true. So they think that the having a free will is compatible with the truth of determinism, whereas incompatibilists think that there's a fundamental in incompatibility between the two, so that if we are free, determinism can't be true, and if determinism is true, then we can't be free. And so a lot of my early work and interest in free will is just trying to sort out these two basic positions and on how human agents fit in with the larger reality in which, in which they're part of. Um, more recently, philosophers are looking at connections between what social psychology has to tell us about free will, what neurobiology has to tell us. There's obviously a, a connection between philosophical debates about free will and numerous theological issues. Yeah, and one of the things that can be confusing is that there are different accounts of what free will is. So, for example, when Dan Dennett talks about free will and he says that's compatible with determinism, he means something a bit different than what most people think of when they talk about free will. Yeah, that's right. In some ways, a big part of the debate is exactly what we mean when we say free will or exactly what is this free will. Um, thing that so many of us are interested in. The subtitle of Dennett's influential book, Elbow Room, is The Varieties of Free Will Worth Wanting. And so some people like Dennett want to talk about different kinds of free will, and, and there might be less robust forms that we do have, more robust forms that we, 
that we don't have or that we don't need. Myself, I think it's more helpful to think about free will with respect to its connection to moral responsibility. And so in my own work, and this isn't unique to me, but I just try to define free will in general uh, or most broadly as the kind of control over our actions that we'd have to have in order to be morally responsible for them. And so this isn't to say that moral responsibility is the only reason we care about free will, but I think that a lot of the free will theorizing that gets done is moved by this concern with the connection between free will and moral responsibility. Well, that's an interesting way to approach it, because I think most philosophers would try to define free will in terms of causality and say that, you know, maybe free will is the power to do something without being fully caused to do it or something like that. Whereas you are saying, let's leave that on the table and say free will is whatever is required for moral responsibility. But then one problem with that is then wouldn't you have to give an entire account of what morality is before you can really say what free will is? I don't think we have to give an entire account of what morality is. Certainly we have to give an account of what moral responsibility is, at least in, in, in the broad strokes. You know, one of the difficulties with philosophy is is most of the issues are not isolated from each other. And so you know, this is, I think, no different than if we wanted to find free will in terms of causality, we'd almost need to have a, a complete causation. Yeah. Of course, the metaphysics of causation are just about as contentious as the metaphysics of free will. Right. And so I think the best that we can do is, is you know, take, take a starting point, realize that what we say on a particular issue is going to be informed and, and, and in various ways depend upon stances and other issues or other areas of philosophy as well. You know, I'm fairly early on in my career. I, I certainly don't have, a, a, you know, a fully worked out account of morality. I don't have a fully worked out account of causation. But I think that we can still make progress on issues, even if we realize that part of what we say might have to be revised as we come up with better accounts in in related areas of the discipline. Yeah. So what are some of the issues where free will interacts with religious thought? One of my probably original interests in free will are just the standard questions about uh, how does free will relate to God. So take debates between on the one hand, Wesleyan Arminians and, and John Calvinists on the other. So Wesleyan Arminians want to say that God does not unilaterally determine everything that happens, whereas certain branches of Calvinism are much more inclined towards theological determinism. You've got related questions about how free will relates to divine foreknowledge. So even if one thinks, for example, that free will is incompatible with God determining everything that happens, does that then entail that free will is incompatible with divine foreknowledge, uh, as some people have thought, or might we think that foreknowledge and divine determinism come apart in various kinds of ways? Yeah, so the worry there is that if God knows what we're going to do in the future, doesn't that mean that we're determined to do it, and doesn't that mean that we wouldn't have free will? Yeah, and so there's a position called theological fatalism that wants to hold, if God knows that I'm going to do something tomorrow, then there's a sense in which it's necessary that I have to do it, and that necessity attached to my doing it would then mean that I couldn't be free with respect to it. This is the worry that motivates um, a very influential view in, in philosophy of religion these days called open theism. So open theists are incompatibilists about free will and foreknowledge. They want to say that we cannot have free will if God determines what we do. But they also think that free will and foreknowledge are incompatible. And so they think that the future is epistemically open to God. And perhaps there are no facts about the future. 
for God to know it all. Yeah, so God still knows all the facts that can be known, but facts about the future aren't among those? Yeah, that I think is the most common form of open theism. Though there are some, like I think Bill Hasker has this view, that there might be facts about the future, but they're just in principle unknowable. So he doesn't want to deny that there is such a thing as facts about the future. But since they're in principle unknowable, then they don't count against God's omniscience that he does not know them. Um, but I think the much more common view is that there, are, there just are not facts about the future, or that at least there are not facts about what will in fact happen with respect to our free choices. There might be facts about what we're likely to do, or you know, there might be facts about that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, or other events that don't depend upon our free will. But most open theists will want to say that there are not facts about how free agents will exercise their, their freedom in the future. So, which view do you take? I'm an incompatibilist about free will and determinism of either the causal sort or theological sort. Uh -huh. But uh, I think that foreknowledge is relevantly different than determinism. So, I see no reason to think that foreknowledge and free will are incompatible. There's a wonderful article by Bill Lykin called Free Will and the Burden of Proof that raises some really interesting methodological issues that have really shaped how I think about both of these issues. So Lykin says, the default position with respect to any two things ought to be their compatibility. It might be helpful to think here in terms of uh, possible world semantics. So two things are compatible if there is at least one possible world where they both obtain. And Lycan says that, you know, possibility understood in that respect is a very weak claim. It just says that it could be the case that these two things both obtain. Yep. Whereas impossibility claims are equivalent to claims about necessity. The two things are impossible if it's necessarily the case that they both do not happen in the same world. And so if you say that two things are compatible, you're just saying that there's at least one possible world out there where they both happen. If you say that two things are incompatible, you're making a much stronger claim in that there is no possible world in which they both happen. And so Lycan's point is just in general, short of having a reason to think that two things are incompatible, the default position ought to be their compatibility. Right. So the burden of proof is on the person who wants to say that something is logically incompatible or metaphysically incompatible. Yes. And, and I think that's right. Now, I happen to think that there are sound arguments, the conclusion of which is free will and determinism are incompatible. I do not think there are sound arguments, the conclusion of which are free will and foreknowledge are incompatible. So I'm, a, I'm an incompatibilist about freedom and determinism, but I'm a compatibilist about freedom and foreknowledge. Okay. So do you actually think then that free will does exist and that God does have foreknowledge of our actions? <laughs> um, I think that most of us tend to think that, that free will does exist, and I, I would like to be able to affirm it. Um, I am in print nowhere committed to the existence of free will. Just because I think that there are some really good arguments that I haven't fully thought through that, that might call into question the existence of free will, regardless of whether or not determinism ends up being true. And I think that presently we have reason to think that at least causal determinism is false. But whether or not causal determinism ends up being true or not is something, I think, ultimately for the physicists rather than the philosophers to tell us. But, you know, I think that there are a number of threats to free will or things that might undermine the existence of free will besides the apparent truth of determinism. And, 
some days I'm really moved and really bothered by those kinds of considerations. I would like it to be the case that, that we have reason to believe in free will, and I would like it to be the case that it exists, but I think it's really hard to come up with a philosophical proof to show that something like that exists. I'm always refreshed when I talk to philosophers and hear such humility about, about knowledge. I'm sure your views will probably change as you continue to research. I would think so. I mean, they've changed even since the time I started graduate school and, and, and you know, over the past decade or so as I've been thinking through these kinds of issues. So right. I would think it very unlikely for, at this point, to me, it's suddenly come to, to have all true beliefs in this respect. <laughs> yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit, you are a Christian and a philosopher. And for some philosophers, like Alvin Plantinga and William Lane Craig, Christianity comes first and philosophy comes second. And for others, philosophy has to come first. And if the reasons end up supporting Christianity, then so be it. What would your approach be? My approach is going to depend in part of, upon the context of what we're doing. So, for example, teaching at a Christian university, uh, I don't want to assume that all of my students are theists. Both universities that I've taught, even though they're affiliated with, with some branch of Christianity or other, that many of my students are not Christians. But in, in the classroom at a Christian university, I think it's easier to just sort of take as a working, you know, working presupposition that, that God exists. Right. At other times when I'm trying to hash things out philosophically, I think I couldn't legitimately do philosophy if I wasn't willing to consider that the proposition God exists might be false. Right. But I think that even in philosophy, it is legitimate at times to take certain presuppositions for granted to see what kind of implications those presuppositions have for other views. Oh, certainly. And so, you know, a lot of my own work in philosophy of religion, I, I don't defend the existence of God because, in part, there's only so much you can do in any particular work. But even apart from defending God's existence, I think that there's some really interesting implications that we can draw out even though I'm familiar with Hanaga's advice to Christian philosophers, mm -hmm. where he basically says the Christian philosopher need not try to prove his or her Christian commitment, but much as many atheist philosophers start with a naturalistic presupposition. I think there's, there's a lot of merit to what Hanaga says there. Scott McDonald, who is also a Norman Kretschmann student, has this wonderful paper where he takes a slightly different take on the relationship between theistic commitments and philosophy. And the, a, a paper that I was able to reprint in the Arguing About Religion collection that I put together. And so McDonald basically says, you know, there are at least two different things that we're trying to do when, when we engage in philosophy of religion. And one might be more positive in the sense that we're trying to prove the existence of God or prove that God has certain attributes or something like that. But at other times, we're just working to clarify a view. Yeah. And so if you can you know, just take a view as given and see what, you know, what exactly it commits you to can give you sort of a cost-benefit analysis. And so you might come to think that a particular view has significantly more cost than another view, which would be perhaps a strike against it. Yeah, and of course that's not exclusive to theism. There are lots of books on naturalism that just take naturalism yeah. as a starting point and then try to work out the implications or try to clarify certain issues within naturalism. In fact, one of my favorite books mm -hmm. is by Gary Drescher called Good and Real, and that's exactly what he's doing in that book. I mean, if we had to solve the most foundational questions, like the existence of God, realism, anti-realism, some of those things, 
before we could go to any other project. We probably wouldn't get to those other issues. And so I think that everybody engaged in philosophical thinking takes for granted certain theories or positions and then and runs with those. And I, and I think that's in fact not only appropriate, but perhaps the only way that philosophy can be practiced. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, you're working on a presentation called The New Atheism and the Nature of Religious Belief. What's that about? So the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and, and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens have a number of books that have come out in the last few years aimed at, rather than a professional philosophical audience, but at a lay audience, that they really argue very vehemently about religion. And many of them argue specifically about Christianity. And the subtitle of Hitchens' book is How Religion Poisons Everything, and Dawkins did a series called The Root of All Evil, meaning religion is the root of all evil. So they're making pretty strong claims. Yeah, they are. And, and they make them very loudly, and they make them very passionately, and, and they've had quite an influence on how people think. I was at a dinner party with a friend of mine who is a um, forensic psychiatrist uh, about two years ago. And so I was the only philosopher at dinner, and, and there are a number of psychiatrists and psychologists. And um, when they found out that I was a philosopher, they wanted to know what I thought about Dennett and Dawkins and Harris. And I think that when you look at the arguments that the new atheists make, they're not nearly as strong as one might be led to believe based upon their influence in, in, in wider culture. Dennett, in fact, actually bothers me more since he's a philosopher by training yeah. and makes some of the same kinds of, I, I think, just uncharitable and, and undeserved moves in his own book. Now, I don't think that the fact that Dennett and Dawkins give a bunch of bad arguments for atheism proves that atheism is bad. I just happen to think that nobody ought to be an atheist on the basis of what's in The God Delusion or... Um, well, there's The End of Faith by Sam Harris. Uh, Dennett's book really isn't an attack on religion so far. Uh, it's just uh, we should study religion, which you know, lots of religious people would agree with. There's a chapter in there where he talks about arguments for the existence of God. So here is the version of the cosmological argument that Dennett gives in his book. But he just writes that the cosmological argument states that since everything must have a cause, the universe must have a cause, namely God. And then he asks, well, what caused God? Well, I don't know of any person who has defended the cosmological argument on the basis of everything must have a cause. And so he's just misrepresenting what the cosmological argument claims. But at the same time, then, to say that theism has to have the kinds of implications that it does, I think is just you know, equally problematic. That theism is inherently unscientific or anti-intellectual is, I think, paying with way too coarse of a brush. I mean, certainly there are stripes of, of theism that are against scientific enterprise or anti-intellectual. This is where I think that certain theists give theism a bad name. And part of what the Christian community needs to do is to raise the standards within its own members. Now, what would you say to the common atheist response that, you know, well, no, Dawkins isn't writing against some kind of sophisticated theological view of God. He's writing against the type of God that millions and millions of people around the world believe in and the reasons that they give for believing in God. What would you say to that? I think that there's quite a bit of truth in that. There are all kinds of theism or all kinds of motivations for theism or reasons given for theism or, or versions of theism that I find um, incredibly naive and uncharitable and vastly problematic. 
you know, two weeks ago when the when the earthquake hit Haiti. A lot of it has been made of Pat Robertson comments about, you know, this is God's punishment for selling out your country to voodooism in order to escape from under French rule. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a Christian, my own view is, Pat, please shut your mouth. <laughs> Um, I was just telling some of my students last week, you know, that one of the most common reasons that people reject Christianity is because they know people who have claimed to be Christian. And in many cases, I don't blame them for those rejections. So I think that the new atheists are right to object to certain popular expressions of theism. But it's one thing to object to popular expressions of theism, and it's another to to claim that theism is false or the root of all evil or something that poisons everything to argue that it is akin to child abuse, departing a long way from what's justified from their arguments. Well, and here I think there are a lot of atheist philosophers of religion who agree with you, and they're kind of glad that the new atheists are making atheism more popular in America or more you can talk about it now, uh, that kind of thing. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, they say, well, but... I wouldn't actually defend any of their arguments. Yeah. I think an excellent example of that is Quentin Smith, who teaches at uh, Western Michigan University. Uh And so he's got a paper basically says that many atheist philosophers have not given nearly enough credit to theistic philosophers. And, and, you know, the examples that he gives are are virtually all Christians, um, Christian philosophers like Alston and Van Inwagen and Swinburne. And so one of the things I really uh, um, appreciate about Quentin Smith's article is that he wants to take seriously the most developed versions of you know, arguments for theism rather than just dismiss the caricatures, even if those caricatures sometimes accurately express what the folk believe. And, and I just don't get the same willingness to engage the best stripes of theism and the best work being done in its favor from people like Dennett and Dawkins and Harris. You know, a, a lot of it is just, I think, ultimately dishonest. Well, so part of it is that they're not representing the best of theism. And then the other part of it is that the arguments for atheism that they give are not very good. And I've written a bit about this on my site. Uh, for example, Dawkins' main argument for atheism, the central point of his whole book, is patently invalid. Um, but then even when uh, an atheist philosopher like Eric Wielenberg tries to reformulate it and make it valid, it still doesn't actually work as an argument. Yeah. So what would you like to see the public debate between theism and atheism look like? I mean, I think that there are great examples of what those, you know, what that debate should look like. I mean, public debate is going to be a little different than the kinds of, you know, philosophical debates that I'm most familiar with. The public debates obviously can't be carried on with the the level of rigor and sophistication that get carried on in philosophical journals. But I think that everybody involved needs to just be more honest and charitable to to their uh, opponent. You take somebody like Bill Rowe, who, you know, is a is a devout defender of atheism because he thinks that the the problem of evil just does not have a satisfactory answer. But he's an example of, like Smith earlier that I mentioned, you know, a, an atheist philosopher who is willing to take seriously the best work and, and, and engage with it honestly and, and give it the benefit of the doubt. And I think that perhaps because people just have so much invested in whether or not theism turns out to be true or not, sometimes people on both sides let their passions get the best of them yeah well kevin thanks for your time thanks for coming on the show you're very welcome i appreciate it